I welcome you to another week of our four-and-a-half-year verse-by-verse journey through all of God's inspired Word and invite you to join me in Ephesians chapter number 1, where we're going to roll things back to verse number 18 so we can get our context back into our minds before we push into the next part of this letter. This letter, I believe, was written in the early months of the year 63. And the reason I believe that is because Paul seems to be anticipating his soon release from detention at Rome. Luke told us at the end of the book of Acts that he spent two full years there waiting for his imperial review to come around. And so we know that took him up through the early spring of 63. And then there seems to be some other things that happen after his release uh, that we'll be bringing up from uh, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. So Ephesians, I believe, is a circular letter intended to probably start at Ephesus and then make its way around the Roman road circuit of the seven churches of Asia and end up at Laodicea, and then from there to go to Colossae. Because when Paul writes the twin letter of Ephesians, the book of Colossians, he sends it to the city of Colossae, to the church there, and tells them to look for a letter coming to them from Laodicea. And that is pretty much a circular letter route from Ephesus through the seven churches of Asia. These two letters express Paul's concern that the church be Christ-centric and live their lives in accordance with that centricity of Jesus as both Savior and Lord. The first chapter that we were looking at last session at the end of last week, was very much focused on the idea of Jesus and how we are saved in Jesus. In fact, predestination, as we talked about from that first chapter, is focused on the idea of setting boundaries up ahead of time, and those boundaries are Jesus, faith in Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for sin. And so it is, every last bit of it, about Jesus. And so that's where I wanted to pick back up again in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. Here we go. Paul writes, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That is, where you make your choices, because he's Jewish, and Jewish people think of the heart as the place where you make your choices. So he wants it to be enlightened with God's light. So I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. Now, the hope that Paul keeps referencing is the hope of resurrection. First, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, but from that, a reinforcement of an ancient hope of Israel, and that is the bodily resurrection of the righteous. So I want you to know what is the hope of his calling, that is, Jesus has called you to himself, 
so that you can be resurrected with him. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? So we've talked about this idea before that the coin of the realm in the kingdom of God is people. God values people, individuals. And so the inheritance of Jesus Christ is people who have come to faith in him and will spend eternity in his presence and in the presence of the Father and in the presence of all the others that have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. So Paul wants his readers, us, to have the eyes of our heart enlightened in such a way that we, we know for a fact that we have this hope that comes through the calling into Jesus Christ that we will be resurrected. And that having been resurrected, we will also understand that we're part of the riches of Jesus' glorious inheritance that is the saints that have been brought into the eternal presence. And, verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? So he had the power not just simply to do miracles, but he had the power to lay down his life as the atoning sacrifice for sin and to be resurrected, to take that life right back up again, to ascend on high. And one of these days, he will resurrect his saints into their brand new bodies. That's powerful. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So God's power is demonstrated through the gospel, through what Jesus did, and through us believing in that gospel that Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture, was buried, was resurrected on the third day according to the scripture. He was seen alive by many reliable witnesses. All of that is from 1 Corinthians 15. And then he ascended on high, and he will remain seated at that right hand of God the Father until God the Father dispatches him to come back and bring us home. Verse 20. Excuse me, 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. So Jesus is in this authoritative position because of his death and resurrection. You might remember in Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus gives the Great Commission, he preambles it, he begins it with the statement, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so here's Paul reinforcing that idea. And he's also above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Jesus' name, which you remember in Hebrew means he who is salvation, is the authoritative name of the Savior, of the Lord. Uh, Paul uh, when he wrote Philippians, pointed out it was because of Jesus' death and resurrection that God gave him this preeminent position and gave him this preeminent name that is above every other name so that people will bow 
at that name. Whether they like it or not is going to be the truth of the matter, uh, because Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then, verse 22, this is where we're getting ready to go to in the next section. He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul wants to talk about the authority structure of the church. And basically, everyone in the church, including leadership, are all submissive to Jesus. He is the head. He is the boss. He calls the shots. He is our Lord and Master. And we don't take votes on that. He is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. And that demands all of us doing things his way, which is some of the things that Paul wants to bring out in this letter. And uh, this idea that Jesus is the body— we saw that, or Jesus is the head and the, and the church is the body. We saw that in Paul's other writings, uh, Romans and 1 Corinthians. And this is what's supposed to lead to us being more unified, being more willing to work with each other, because we understand it's not about us. It's about him. And so let's uh, make sure that we keep that in mind as we move forward uh, in this particular letter. Chapter number two, and remember there are no chapter divisions in the original letter. Those have been added later by those thinking that it would help uh, people to find uh, passages quicker, and it is helpful in that, but sometimes their divisions are a little bit rough. So chapter two, verse one, says, and, so it starts with a conjunction, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So he says, let's talk about the present. We were all saved and sanctified by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are part of the body of Christ, and he is the head. But I want you to remember where we all started. He says, you, and he could have just as easily said, we were dead in trespasses and sins because to disobey God is to die spiritually. The soul which sins is the soul that will die. That's Ezekiel chapter 18. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have been separated from his eternal presence and his eternal presence is true life. So spiritual death is being separated from God. So that's where we all were. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now we'll discover later that Paul is addressing a large number of Gentile believers in this letter. And so he thinks about them in their particular perspective of never having had a connection with the Creator God before. They were following other gods and goddesses, 
uh, fallen angel uh, uh, wannabes to the, uh, the power of a god. And so Paul says, you guys all used to walk in the way of this world according to what Satan was up to, because he is the prince of the power of the air. Air has to do with the livable place on earth, so the atmosphere. Uh, and so Satan runs roughshod over sinners. That has always been the case. Uh, free will is still the rule, and Satan has managed to convince an awful lot of people to join him in the free will rebellion against God. And so that is the spirit that is now at work among the sons of disobedience. Because to disobey God, when he says, don't do sin, be holy as I am holy, when you blow that off, that's disobedience. Verse 3, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. So now he definitely jumps on board. Uh, just like he did in the book of Romans, he pointed out it's not just Gentiles that have sinned. Jews have as well. Uh, even with the law, they still did wrong things. In fact, the point of the law was to tell them they got to knock that nonsense off. And so, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So, I really think in verse 3, he's got in mind his fellow Jewish believers in Jesus. We were all screwed up, he says. All of us let our bodies run roughshod over us. Remember when he was writing in the book of Romans, he said, there was a point at which I didn't know what sin was. And then the law comes along and informs me what sin is. And guess what? Suddenly I get intrigued by that. And my body wants to do some of those things. And so then the body and the mind get into conflict with one another. And sin comes into existence when eventually we give in to our own desires. Remember the book of James. No one should be going out there saying, well, the reason I sin is because God tempted me, because that's not what God does. James says the real thing is that we have been drawn away into sin by our own desires getting out of control. I used the illustration back when we were going through the book of James. The bodily desires were given by God as part of our individual humanness. Uh, it's what makes life enjoyable uh, to have taste buds, be able to smell things, see in color, and touch and feel things, and hear all of these things. But in a sinful world, those senses don't discriminate. In fact, they can be quite self-centered. And so I might see a delicious piece of chocolate cake, or actually see the whole cake itself, and go, it would be delicious to have one slice out of that cake. But my body goes, you know what? 
it would be even better to eat the whole thing. And I have to wrestle with that. And too often, you give in to it. And so that's where sin comes from, is when we give in to our natural desires trying to take us across appropriate lines. And so Paul says that. He says, even those of us that were Jewish and had some training in the idea of these things, we still lived by the desires of our flesh. We indulged in those desires and let our minds make bad choices. And therefore, we also became children of wrath. That is, we became people condemned for sin. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses, just like everybody else. But, and this is the great passage here, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. See, that's that John 3.16 thing again, that God so loved the world, meaning not how much God loved us, but how God loved us. God loved us in this way, that he gave his only begotten son, that is, his one-of-a-kind son, that whoever would believe in him as their Lord and Savior would not have to perish, would not have to be a child of wrath, but could have eternal life instead. So here is Paul reinforcing that Christian basic concept. God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. So even when we were enemies with God, remember that from Paul's recent letter to the Romans? Even when we were enemies with Christ or with God, God showed his love by sending Christ to be the atonement for our sin. So, God's mercy, God's love, motivated, for him, motivated him to intervene on our behalf. And by us believing in that offer of salvation that is in Jesus' name, he who is salvation, we were made alive again. We were, as the Gospel of John says, that Jesus said, born again. And uh, Paul can't help it. He has to throw in an exclamation here in the end of verse number five. By grace, you have been saved. Grace is unmerited favor. It's somebody doing good things for you, whether you deserved it or not. Didn't matter. They just wanted to be kind to you. So it is by God's grace, by God's mercy, by God's love that we have been saved through the name and action of that name, Jesus. And then verse 6, And he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So even while we're still living in this world, in these physical messed up bodies, because we've been born again in the Spirit, because we've been saved and sanctified, filled with the Holy Spirit, we have been made one with Jesus. And where is Jesus at? 
last chapter, we were talking about this. He is seated in the heavenly realms above every other power and authority. So we are, even though we're still here on planet Earth physically, we are spiritually connected with Jesus in the heavenly realms. Verse 7, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I find this verse very interesting. Jesus has saved us and will in eternity future brag on us. We are his trophy. We are his proof of how things turned out for why he died and rose again. Uh, We were worth it, and he will be glad to point to us throughout all eternity as to uh, why it made sense for him to do what he did. Now, verse 8 has unfortunately been misunderstood and misapplied by some people who have gotten themselves caught up in... um, systematic theology, which I do have a problem with. There is some need to systematize our understanding of Scripture, but we've got to always be careful not to let our system overwhelm our proper understanding of Scripture. Uh, it, I guess the best way to describe it is, when we approach Scripture, we should have as a goal to put round pegs in round holes and square pegs in square holes and triangles in triangle holes and not be convinced, well, this has to be a triangle, and we start hammering it into a round hole uh, just because that's the way we want it to be. We can't do that sort of um, of misappropriation of the text. It, it, it does um, damage to uh, the intention of the Holy Spirit if we don't let the text say what the text says. Okay? So let's read verse number 8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. So we already saw, by grace you've been saved, up in verse number 5, didn't we? And we know that grace is unmerited favor. That is, somebody likes us and does something for us regardless of whether we deserved it or not. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were still enemies of righteousness, God saw us as potential friends and acted on our behalf. So that is the grace And we were saved through faith. Faith is the means by which we embrace that offer of salvation. And then verse 8 goes on and says, And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now this is where the problem comes in. Because some of our friends have been caught up in this systematic theology and say that faith is the gift of God. And it is not. Uh, the verbiage in the Greek language make that impossible. The uh, genders do not match uh, between faith 
and that, uh, which is not of yourselves. They don't match gender-wise. And so the only thing that makes sense here is that it is the process of salvation that Paul is referring to. That's the gift of God. We didn't do that. We didn't earn our salvation by doing perfect things or making up for the times that we didn't do perfect things by doing a lot more perfect things. Uh, We simply saw the gospel, believed the gospel, embraced the gospel through faith. And that offer of salvation, that gifting of grace, that's the gift of God. Verse number nine, and here's the reason why. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Uh, So, some of the Jewish people had gotten it into their heads that God owed them. And we still have people today that kind of get that into their heads. I'm a good enough person. I do lots of good things. God owes me. No, he doesn't. That's not the way it works. Salvation is a gift of God, and it was accomplished through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not because we forced God to do that on our behalf, but because he gifted it to us in spite of where we were at at the beginning. And so we don't get to brag on being saved. Instead, this is how we look at our salvation. Verse number 10, and this is where we're going to have to finish up today. For we are his workmanship. And the word there for workmanship is where we get our word for poem. It means something that has been constructed with care and intended to be used and appreciated. So we are God's poem. We are God's workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we're not saved because we do good works. We are saved in order to do good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So God has always wanted us to be holy as he is holy. And when we sinned, each and every one of us, of our own free will, and screwed that whole process up, he had already made a way for us to be saved and come back into right relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And he already had the things that he wanted us to do once we came to our senses and came to Christ. Uh, God's got plenty of stuff out there for us to do, not the least of which would be to live out the gospel in front of other people so that they might hear it and see it and believe it and be saved.